Hello. Y'all sound loud and clear. Yeah, my evil plan isn't working. That's why I'm so quiet. I was trying to um, play the Vangelis theme. Oh. And it didn't work. <laughs> my iTunes wouldn't... Wait. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Welcome to episode 33 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com. Ryan Who just Adams. killed himself. <laughs> and me from wardsdaily.com. And today, we're going to be talking about the movie that did not deserve to beat Reds uh, in the 1982 Oscars from the 1981 year of film. Craig will be playing the runner who's the Jew, and Ryan will be playing the runner who's running for God. <laughs> Appropriate. And I get to play Diane Keaton in Reds because I get to have sex with Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. So <laughs> and be to... in control of them, too, pretty I much, I know, right? and totally break Jack Nicholson's heart. What a heartbreaker you are. <laughs> All right, that's enough of Vangelis, so thank you, Vangelis. You know what's strange about that Vangelis music is a year later he scored Blade Runner, and so I always associate that orchestration and the whole sound of that score with Blade Runner. So I watched a little bit of Cherry Sapphire this afternoon, try to catch up on my homework a little bit, and immediately all I could think about was Blade Runner. It's so inappropriate for the time, isn't it? That synthesizer music to 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 be yeah. the background for a film that takes place in what nineteen twenties, it just doesn't sound right. To but me. that's the that's the thing is that it was an interesting choice to go with modern music instead of Instead of, of a more classical score, and I think it, it was it was obviously they did it on purpose, mm-hmm. and, it, and maybe at the time it worked, but now since it, it, it sounds so dated now, it, it works for Blade Runner, which is this, but it, for this it just seems it just seems so wrong because it's so specific to 1981, you know, if if it were something more general, more. I don't know, more timeless, it would still work. It's not that the fact that it was modern. It's just the fact that it's so specifically 1981 that makes it seem terribly wrong 20 years later. I'm so That's tempted a- to play it again. <laughs> That's really so smart, Craig. That's so right. You know, maybe at the time it might have seemed really, really cool and really, really with it and everything. But it is, it does have, have such a 1980s, almost disco sound to it that it sounds just really strangely dated and inappropriate now. But it was a great idea then because they didn't really plan on it being a big Oscar movie, Chariots of Fire. And um, I remember being, you know, as a teenager in um, Ojai, my friend Rain and I loved Chariots of Fire because we totally had that 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 music to bring us into it as young mm-hmm. teenagers. You know, the the weird. Like it oh, was yeah. on, like they would play it like on top forty radio, you know. Oh yeah, it was a, it was definitely a Billboard uh, top ten hit like all year long. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was an or- or- orchestral like you know. I'm sure a lot of people like were conceived to that music. You know, probably a lot <laughs> no, of people. No, totally. You know, oh used god, still fucked to that music. But to me, I mean, we'll get to Chariots of Fire later because we want to talk about quickly about Man of Steel, and we also want to talk a little bit about um, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, kind of taking a big shit on the lap of modern Hollywood, which I just love that they did that. But um, So we can talk about those quickly, and then we'll dive into 1981. Okay. Craig, you saw Man of Steel this afternoon? I didn't. I um, did oh, okay. homework instead. I'll see it tomorrow. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Well, I, I was curious to see. What, I, I got the impression from an earlier email that you sent that maybe you didn't, you weren't crazy about it. But now I understand that you just didn't see it yet. I, I tend to be skeptical about the whole superhero thing in general because there's like 12 of them every summer and I'm a little tired of it. But at the same time, every time one comes out, um, it seems like every time it offers something a little bit new, then it then it interests me again. So, and so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the bad reaction to, to Superman is actually a good sign. Keep like your it. keep your expectations low. You know, I think that really really benefits a lot of movies if you go into them almost expecting to be disappointed, and then when you're not disappointed, and when you can find things that are are exciting and different and new and fresh and actually kind of thrilling about them, it's a nice surprise. So keep those expectations down. Is it fair to say that both of you went into it really not expecting very much? Yeah, because David Poland and, uh, and Jeff Wells both hated it, so I almost wanted to love it <laughs> because <laughs> of that. But, um, you know, I took Emma with me, and she's always a good barometer, I think, um, for sort of clearing through the bullshit and kind of just telling me what she thought. And, you know, she doesn't read the reviews. She's not tapped into any of the buzz or box office news or anything like that. It's just pure movie. And, you know... I think she kind of thought what I thought, which was that he was really super cute, heart-stoppingly cute, and that um, it was a little boring in parts and repetitive um, and loud. It made a couple of kids cry. <laughs> it was loud. Well, <laughs> they were crying. It's, it's loud, and it's also genuinely scary. I think if you if you pay attention to it and really take seriously the threat, the threat that is being inflicted upon planet Earth is really really dire it's not as it's not a cartoonish mm-hmm. or comic book threat at all it's very very serious shit coming down yeah. and if you pay attention to that it's, it's kind of serious it's really a, a, a dire situation but by the end she was won over by him and i was too and i think for me the key of the movie is sort of the same things that have always worked about the superman story that that even this movie even with its shaky cam and its grunge look and its um, it's kind of, you know, Michael Bay-esque qualities to it. It it still couldn't really ruin that thing that is great about Superman, the guy from Kansas who saves humanity and is so good, is such a good person and, you know, loves Lois Lane and will do anything to protect her and has this great mom and dad and this great story and he's going to save the world and he's Superman. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that part of it just doesn't, can't get killed. He has two pairs of great of mom and dads. He has right. two pairs of fantastic <laughs> parents that are absolutely excellent, all four of them. Yeah, except for poor, you know, because Russell Crowe was in Les Mis. He's forever branded by Emma's generation as the guy in Les Mis who kept showing up and singing. Like, they don't know Russell Crowe from anything oh, else. That's so anytime he came on screen, my Emma would laugh. <laughs> Someone mentioned on Twitter, I hadn't thought of it, it wouldn't have occurred to me, but both uh, Kevin Costner and Russell Crowe have played Robin Hood. So it was like Battle of the Robin Hood Dads. How weird. I really liked Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. Mm-hmm. I really I thought Russell Crowe was pretty good. I don't know what he's doing with his accents though. I think he needs to, to lighten it up a little bit because he comes off as sounding a little foppish mm-hmm. sometimes, I thought. But he was still good, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard. I mean, it's hard enough to to do to speak English when you're supposed to be from another country. But when you're speaking English and you're from another planet, I don't know what you're what you really can do to your inflection to make your, yourself sound like you're from a, a galaxy far away. You know? Well, he didn't sound like anyone else. No, that's true. He didn't. So, but um, but it's, it didn't matter because in the second half, I thought he, in the first part he was a little hard to buy. But as the weird consciousness guy, he totally mm-hmm. nailed it. 
Yeah, I think so, too. And as far as the grunge look goes, I agree with you. It was pretty gritty here on Earth. But the earlier, the first, like the first hour or the first 45 minutes when they're on planet Krypton, I found that really spectacular, spectacular production design, really beautiful and really amazingly that 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 liquid metal sort of look, almost like a steampunk and uh, Anthony Gaudi sort of architecture. Uh, combined with Art Nouveau, uh, just really, really amazing production design. You must have seen it on a nice print and a good screen, because the one that I saw it on, it did not read very well. I imagine that in a really high-def environment and a good quality mm-hmm. print, it would look beautiful, but my print was not at all. Oh, that's too bad. I know. What theater did you see it at? I went to the, the, you know, the armpit one that we always go to down, way down in Van Nuys, in like the bowels of Van Nuys, which we love going to for some reason. <laughs> yeah, people are like, well, why don't you just go to the arc line? You know, and I probably should, but I don't know. The arc line costs like $20. <laughs> First of all. And second of all, there's just something I, you know, reminds me of my childhood. It's just, I've been doing it for years. It's just to, you know, go to the multiplex in the valley on a hot, on a hot day and, and Right. You know, and you should just, try the one in Burbank. It's nicer, but it's still suburban-y, multiplexy, and pretty much has all of the all of the current releases. You didn't see it in 3D, did you? Uh-uh. Okay, good. Yeah, I think that would have made it even worse because it is the first 45 minutes is very monochromatic. It's all grays and blacks and shades of gray. So it's like mm. lead and and mercury colors. You know, liquid yeah. mercury and. It, it all it, without if it what if you don't have a really pretty bright screen that's all going to sort of uh, fuzz together. I think. Yeah, that's what it looked like, fuzzy and kind of out of date and um, mm-hmm. uh, you know FX TV show ish sort of. Oh but. yeah, that's too bad because I hope it plays well on screeners because I think a lot of people were probably at the end of the year the Academy who watches the Academy members who get around to watching it probably won't see it in the theaters so they may only see it on screeners and so I always worry about how it's going to read They're on not the home gonna, screen. They won't even get through it. They'll turn it no, off halfway that's through. That's too bad. That's There's really no too way bad. they're going to get through that movie. There's no way. I mean, the audience I saw it with really liked it. Like they clapped afterwards, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading the the comments from people, I mean, it, it really show, it sort of illuminates the, the the ridiculousness of how many critics there are now writing about movies. It's like how many of these like stupid essays about <laughs> Superman do we have to read? I, I know mean, really, they're all what's so the much point? alike, and they all they talk about repetitive. The reviews, I mean, people run out of things to say, and it's almost as if they're reading what what their their friends are saying, and so they all sound alike. Sort oh of my to me. god, that's so true. I'm so tired of hearing the exact same things. Like you're going to tell me something about this movie, please make it original. You know, at least right. try to say yeah. something that hasn't been said 500 times before. You know, well, I'm saying that I think the production design was really amazing, and I think cinematography too. And I think that both of them. Um, or really, I think the, the the art direction is is Oscar worthy. Mm. But I don't know. Like you said, I don't know if the if the if the art directors guild picks up on it, it might stand a chance. But if the Academy members don't watch it, then no chance, I guess. No, and I, I don't know who did the cinematography, but it's not Wally Pfister, I don't think. And no, you can really it doesn't tell. have that sheen to it. No, it doesn't have the sheen, and that's what I felt like was kind of missing. But again, like I went into it like you did with really low expectations, and you know. I'm not asking for a whole hell of a lot on an afternoon fun movie trip with with Emma. You know, my my needs yeah. are very small, uh-huh. and it fulfilled those and then some. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to sit there and write. I don't know why any self-respecting critic would. 
sit there and write like a deep analysis of this movie. It's so dumb. They no. should really save that for movies that are, you know, that, that are asking you to do to deep to think deeply. You know, I don't think Superman they could be doing those kind of pieces on the bling ring, but most of them hated it. So, right. Ugh, can we just not talk about that? Oh, it's so depressing. I'm glad that if you're going to remake Superman, that you don't try to remake the previous movies, but did you go back and not only just go back to the comic books and try to retell a different version of the origin story, but try to give a different slant on the story altogether. And I thought that the movie did a really great job doing that. Show me things about Superman that I'd never even considered before and that I like a lot better than any other version of Superman that I've ever seen, including the original. Same now that I've here, had time yeah. to think about it, I like it even better than the original 19... 19- 78 version you mean you like the stuff like the that where he had to kind of explain his senses and his sen- mm-hmm. sensory reactions and oh yeah. yeah i thought that was really brilliant when he was a child that it showed that he had sensory overload because he was so his senses and his ear his hearing and his vision are so he he can see through everything so as a kid he could see through everything he was seeing people's skeletons inside their bodies and stuff like that yeah. which is really trippy that i never considered before that that x-ray vision can be Really hard to adjust to, I imagine, until you learn to control it. They seem to really take into consideration what a real Superman as alien might really be like on the planet. Like, what other considerations would a a guy that's that strong, Mm -hmm. you know, and that sensitive and that, you know, have so many... good traits you know what what would it be like for him and they really did do that if i could redo the movie myself i would lessen greatly lessen the zod stuff like maybe to make Mm -hmm. it like a third and then make two-thirds all the other stuff which i liked so much which was the you know stuff on the earth with the saving people in his background and his story with lois lane and all that you know Mm -hmm. the final showdown did almost press my the limits of my patience because for one thing you know how i hate boxing movies and that really is what it it was really just like rock'em sock'em robots there at the end just like a lot of punching just see how far you can knock the other guy how many miles away you can punch him Mm -hmm. you know and that that got a little bit old and that part was repetitive i think it probably could have been trimmed a good 10 or 15 minutes probably and i wouldn't have missed it yeah i'll tell you what never gets old is superman rescuing people like to me that's such a great Mm -hmm. thrill to see when he does it every time you know even as a boy yeah even as a kid uh, yeah especially i loved his Mm -hmm. stuff as a kid you know yeah that's a good 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 actor that kid you know and cute just like (laughs) he grows up to be the cutest (laughs) man ever to grace the screen (laughs) <laughs> That's one thing about Superman that I guess we'll never see. Talk about how how exploring Superman's powers. We never get to re- really understand what Superman is like in bed. Oh, That's a shame. Know. You know, wouldn't that be amazing to see an R-rated Superman? This particularly this <laughs> Superman. <laughs> Although they do, don't, doesn't he hint at that a little bit at the end, where she says something to him like, "They always say that after the first kiss, it goes, it's downhill from there." And he says, "Well, they're not kissing Superman." Mm-mm-mm. So it's a little bit of a hint, like you wait and see if it goes downhill after the first kiss. Right. No, I believe me, I spent way too much time pondering <laughs> Superman <laughs> sex. I'm afraid I'm embarrassed to say. You know, I, I tend to not really respond to movie actors the way a lot of women do. I definitely don't have that. Oh my God, the bad bachelor is so cute thing you know i don't read romance novels they don't really get you know i don't really fall hard for heartthrobs but that guy mm. it's well, not, he's just not only looks. just really perfect looking but he's, yeah. he's charming 
He's a good actor. And he's so, his niceness comes through, you know, like his, Mm -hmm. like the best, one of the best, my favorite moments in the movie was when somebody knocks down Diane Lane. And the one thing you don't want to do is hurt Superman's mom. (laughs) I know, right? They're not best with Superman's mom. (laughs) So when he comes like a, you know, a thunderbolt and attacks that guy, that, that's such a great, I mean, he's just, it's hard not to like him. He's funny. He's, this is something about his face and his manner. He's just a very, Gentle person. Ever. Yeah. Right, exactly. Really gentle and self-effacing and, and humble, you know. I thought he really came across really well and really sexy in the first meeting there in the graveyard scene where she goes to see his father's grave and he shows up there and he says, I knew you would track me down, so I did, I'm here to introduce myself. Yeah. I think that first meeting, he looked so good there. I know. Oh, God. He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. so freaking cute, man, that guy. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, so I guess we should move on. <laughs> I guess so, but, because, um, this, like you said, this this movie probably has zero Oscar chances, and, except for the Tech Awards. But also, yeah. I want to say, too, before we move on, this, the effects, too, were incredibly realistic. I've never seen more convincing um, distru- um, depictions of construct of destruction, like the, the 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 oil rig and the buildings falling and things like that. I've never seen that done so well. I know it looked great. That part of it was a th- was thrilling. I thought. I mean, it's yeah. talk about bang for your buck. It really did. It really did deliver on that level. That's why I think a lot of audiences are going to go for it, despite what. People have been telling me I was disappointed. It was like a Michael Bay film. And, you know, the problem, one of the problems with it was that the tra- the teaser from Comic-Con last year was so good, but it, it set you up for a certain kind of movie. You know, you mm-hmm. really thought it was going to be like that glossy Wally Fister, golden light kind of thing. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's dark and grungy, and it's, it's more like Superman 2 than Superman. It's more like the ones with the, you know, the sci-fi trio who attacks superman that's really what this is more like than the first superman you know right and and the storyline too because it was written by david goyer who did who wrote um the dark knight it has the has he brings out all the darkness all the dark aspects of what is the, the downside of being a superhero yeah one 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 way to lead into the spielberg lucas thing is to is to remember that in 1981 uh, the first collaboration between george lucas and steven spielberg when they made raiders of the lost ark um, here are the two biggest money-making directors and producers of all time joining forces for a brand-new franchise that was a pretty terrific franchise. You know, all four of those movies are really excellent, really really a great time at the movies. And at that time, in 1981, the four highest-grossing movies of, uh, of all time were Jaws, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. So these two guys had had the four top spots locked up. So and then here we are 35 years later when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are almost lamenting the fact that what they what they began almost went out of spiraled out of control. They created a Frankenstein monster that they wished they could put the genie back in the bottle almost. Yeah, so so Spielberg um foretells that movies will be um really high-end ticket events like Broadway where you spend maybe 30, 40 dollars for a good seat, really nice seat in the house. You're going to totally get your money's worth. You're going to see a movie like Superman probably, maybe longer, with intermission, sort of like it was, as Michael, my friend, pointed out, the way it used to be when movies first started. You know, when you had gone with the wind and there would be this long intermission and it would be like a family event. You'd go to the movies. Mm -hmm. It would be a big deal. 
And I believe mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind had premium price tickets back then, too, although back then it was only a dollar or maybe even 50 cents. But that was more than people were used to paying for a first-run movie. And you had you these had, luxury cinema houses, you know, mm-hmm. like you might yeah. have. You might you might be sitting down into something like that feels like IMAX, sort of, you know. that yeah. That's Spielberg's take. And then George Lucas thinks, what did he say again? Um, he's, he, well, they said so many things. He, they said they both said that, that that movies that are that are that are talky and intelligent adult adult grown up movies are going to have fewer and fewer pathways into multiplex theaters because that's not what the theater owners want to exhibit. They don't feel like that they can they have the right profit margin in order to to screen those movies. And I think that maybe part of the reason that Spielberg's first remark that got all the headlines when he says that he feels uh, that he um, sees a, ch- a possibility that the film industry might implode in the near future. I believe what he might have been better off saying is the film industry as we know it is, might implode. But that's happened over and over throughout film history, and the film industry always finds a way to figure out how to adapt to the implosion and to do, become what it needs to be. Well, it's true, and, 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 you know, with Soderbergh and Spielberg and Lucas, I mean, they're talking about a sort of a different level of um, movie-making. They're talking about big studios, big studio films, and they're right. Mm-hmm. The big studio films are becoming these hideous tentpole, prod, you know, film that cost a lot of money and have to make $200, $300, 400000000 million um, during their short run. And... Mm-hmm. I still bring up Ben Zeitlin because to me, he's like the future of film, you know, Mm -hmm. his model for production, but they made that movie like for a million dollars or something heavy on story, heavy on acting and crowdsourcing the film crew, you know? Mm -hmm. So these, these kind of movies are never going to go away. Those movies don't are, are are easy to produce because they don't cost a lot. They're easy to raise the money for it. And they're easy to finance there. They don't require a, a lot of a huge audience in order to make their money back, and so those, those filmmakers can can stay sort of under the radar and, and get away with not with not earning fifty million or a hundred million dollars. But I think there is the middle range of pictures, movies like maybe Red Tails or Lincoln, that that have to cost a lot of money because they're period pieces and the star power that you have to hire and the quality of the of the technical crew and everybody that you get. Those movies cannot be made for twenty million dollars. No, and they're probably no. going to be going going away. You know, like mm-hmm. he said that Spielberg said that Lincoln almost went to HBO, yeah. and you know how. And then we saw Soderbergh's Behind the Candelabra going to HBO because no studio would finance it. So studios are really in control now, even of the big names like Spielberg mm-hmm. and Fincher. These guys, they don't have the kind of control they used to have and the clout they used to have. Because the audiences aren't turning out for them anymore. The audiences are turning out for product because they've been branded as consumers for the last three decades. Branded. Advertising, advertising from movies has become so, so important and so skillful that the marketing of a movie can be more important than who's in it and who's directing it. Yeah, and they're, they're really, really good at it now. And, and yeah. kids grow up um, aligning themselves with products, with toys, with brand names. And they're aligned with with these certain franchises, these movie franchises, and they're loyal to them, and they'll keep turning out. That's Um, another thing. doesn't matter who directed Mm -hmm. them. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Another thing, too, I think that we we began to see on the cusp of the 70s and 80s when studios realized that they could make money not only from the movie, they could make money from the toys and the, the, uh, the 
video games and things like that, they they under, they realize pretty quickly that that kids are not going to buy the Kramer versus Kramer lunchbox. They're going to buy the Star Wars lunchbox, right? Mm. And so they're going to buy the toys that go along with it and all the ancillary, you know, um, paraphernalia that goes along with movies are, are a big profit um, point for movie uh, for studios in order to make that type of movie. You're not going to you're not going to find Lincoln action figures, for instance, or a Lincoln video game. I worry what what you were saying before too about the middle ground of movies. There's going to be a whole range of movies that are not big enough for theaters, but too big for TV. And so the Lincolns and and movies like that risk disappearing, which would be sad. Mm, I think that's that we're in a dangerous time because TV is not quite to the point where they can they can really do an epic an epic story as well as, as as what you can experience in a theater. But on the other hand, you would never have been able to find anything like Band of Brothers, which is epic by any, by any sense of the imagination in a theater. You know, it's epic in every way. And so television at its very at the very pinnacle of what television can do can be pretty impressive. That's a good point. Here we go. <laughs> is that like you're playing the off? Is that like the music you're playing the off? This is going to be the new music for um, the Oscars when people get played off. It should be this 1981 calling. 1981's calling. We better get to it, my okay, friends. We yeah, because there's a lot going on in 1981, and I really do like so many movies that year. And like you said earlier when we were talking about prepping for, for tonight's episode, that... Um, it is shocking, really, that that Cherries of Fire came up from behind and and whipped the Americans. My God! Well, let's start it. <clears throat> Let me just quickly give a brief overview of the Oscar race that year. Um, it was dominated by Reds, which I just watched, which took up all my day. <laughs> I was like, "My God, this movie's still on!" But Isn't it's, it amazing. Though? It's Don't so amazing. I just it stopped my heart by the end. I just grabbed my heart and I was like, "Wow, that movie." Um, and it is. It's hard to get through. It's long and it's bo- you know boring in parts, and and it's hard to follow. And it's intellectual, and it's you it's know it's not. It's you just, don't root you for to, guys to... running across the finish line, you know. But it's um. But anyway, so he made this great achievement. It took him decades of thinking about it before he ever even put it to screen, and um, it, it got rave reviews by the critics. Um, one critic called it the most important American movie since Citizen Kane. And Chariots of Fire, on the other hand, was like the King's Speech. It was being heralded as the film that was going to save the British film industry. Um, And I'll read you, uh, when we get to Chariots of Fire, I'll read you a little bit of of, uh, what people thought of that movie when it first came out. Not just critics, but audiences. It was really like the King's Speech versus the social network because unlike... um, Unlike the King's Speech, Chariots of Fire really came from behind. Everybody thought Reds was going to win. It had 12 nominations. It had um, four acting nominations, which wasn't, again, repeated until the totally undeserving Silver Linings Playbook. Um, compared to Reds, give me a break. <laughs> God. But um, And it was up against On Golden Pond, which was another very formidable contender. It was the other big winner at the Golden Globes. Formidable um, in, in the sense that it was in the other emotional movie. It was the other movie that tugged at your heart in the same way that Cherries of Fire may have done. Right. And Raiders of the Lost Ark was the other movie, and Atlantic City was also in the race. Raiders and Chariots of Fire both won four Oscars. Reds won three, and Atlantic City won zero. Um, yeah. But it, it was really held, it was really carried through by the critics, Atlantic City, because it made no money. 
So one of the problems with Reds in retrospect was that it didn't make it made around 40 million and mm-hmm. it cost almost that much. So it made a tiny it was like the, the social network in that way. It made a tiny profit, but it didn't really make the kind of money that you need to be thought of as a winner in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Chariots of Fire, on the other hand, made a lot of money compared to what it cost, but um, made like $68 million or something, which at the time was a lot. It was um, the highest grossing import film of all time at, at the time in 1981. No other movie that hadn't been made in Hollywood had ever made that much movie, made that much money. Right. And it made even more money after the Oscars because people who had missed it didn't think that it looked like much the first time around after it won Best Picture. Back then, of course, people wanted to see what the big deal was all about. And so it made a huge amount of money after the Oscars. Yeah. And it really was literally, literally the little movie that could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, on Golden Pond made around $100 million. It was really popular, too. It was probably the most... Um, absorbed into the American psyche, that movie. It was people were doing their Catherine Hepburn imitations and talking about Jane Fonda and, and her father, Pete, you know, Henry Fonda. And mm-hmm. so Henry Fonda and, and Catherine Hepburn both won for lead actor and actress. Another um, thing that is, hasn't that has only happened really rarely in, in Oscar history that that lead actor and lead actress both win. You know, that hardly ever happens. Right. And Maureen Stapleton won for Reds. Um, which to me was sort of a weird win. It was like her third win, but um, she was deserving as an actress in Hollywood, but um, she kind of paled in comparison, I thought, to uh, Jane Fonda and on Golden Pond. They were both up for supporting. And then, of course, John Gilgood won supporting for Arthur, and Warren Beatty deservedly won Best Director. Sort of like they were saying... We want to pat you on the back, Warren, for a job well done, but we didn't like your movie as much as we like that movie. It was Warren Beatty. That, that, that Reds runs into a problem with is is the is the politics of it. I mean, we're talking at a time when Reagan had just swept into the White House mm. and the Soviet Union were our big, they were the big bad. They were the people that we all hated. And Reds is, is very sympathetic to the Russian communist cause. And I think that probably had a great deal to do with it losing and ultimately with um with um chariots of fire winning because chariots of fire is very conservative it's all about um it, it the only thing that it puts more important than nationalism is god mm. so the message that it's giving i think is a lot more comfortable to people than than that than reds was which is too bad because I think Reds is at its strongest when it's talking about the politics between the characters, not not the na- national politics, but the sexual politics. I think that's where it's, it's most interesting. True. And let's also just, I mean, just to clarify real quickly, uh, uh, Reds is about socialism, not communism, although people have always confused the two. And especially, in, in, you did say communism, but, but, that's, uh, I, but pe- that's what people were all, have always thought, that people who are against both of them, they think that they're one and the same. They think they're synonymous. But Reds is about the, the, uh, the genesis of the socialist movement in America. Not, it didn't have anything to do with communism. Oh, I, mean, I thought it did. Because yeah. that's still, it's still a bad word that people, people use it as a bad word. Your Michelle Bachmans will accuse mm-hmm. somebody of being a socialist, and it's like the worst possible insult she can think of. So we haven't actually grown much in our, our thoughts of that. Yeah, it really seemed like communism to me. I guess I needed to pay better attention. But I was really struck by Warren Beatty going to, I think it's Afghanistan he goes to. And... Mm-hmm. Um, they're telling him to preach the, you know, the socialist agenda or the communist agenda. And, and he says he wants, he's talking about a class war and they translate it to holy war. 
and you have all these angry um, Afghans, you know, shouting holy war against the infidels and burning the American flag. It's like, wow, <laughs> really, all the way back then, the same stuff was going on. But um, you're right, though. And what we don't do in this podcast, what we should do more of, is put the Oscar race in the context of history. And what was happening right then was, was Reagan um, and Margaret Thatcher, right? <clears throat> and Bobby Sands had just started his fast. Uh, he starts his fast this year too, and then mm. and then I think he dies. Um, Can I say I'm always the one who wants to try to temper what we say about the politics, but not not as if I'm trying. I'm not trying to argue, I'm not, but I just want to just try to tone things down a little bit and to remind people that even though Reagan did take office in 1981, was elected in 1980, and took office in 1981, he won for the presidency with with less than 51% of the vote, barely over 50% of the vote. And so that still means that half the country did not like Reagan. So when you say America went, went, went for Reagan, that it was the Reagan era, it was the Reagan era insofar as he was president for eight years, but a lot of people for the next eight years really still hated him. It really no, didn't I know. like sure. the I mean, politics. And so, so the country was still really evenly divided. And I think Hollywood has always been really careful about not wanting to play politics in either direction. We don't get any really conservative movies during the Reagan era that much either. No, Although, no, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But um, as a as a, a old person who actually lived through the era, unlike my young friend here who's doing the talking about the time I lived through, I remember fucking Reaganomics, okay? Oh, yeah, I remember for sure. living that was, through. That's still a thing. You know, that trickle-down theory, people still want to believe it. It wasn't bullshit. just trickle-down. It was it, There yeah. was a whole philosophy around it. It was, it was the... the the era of the yuppie and it was the era of um economic you know progress and you know don't and look out for yourself and mm-hmm. you know no, you're so, so right the 80s were all about making money right and about the yuppie movement but there you're right that there was a subversive element of course but um mm-hmm. but it was also a strange time to be living through it was a lot like living through the bush era you know a lot yeah. of people hated mm-hmm. bush but there was no denying his influence on on um culture there was a whole mood yeah. in the country at that time that allowed Reagan to win. Whether you agreed with him or not, he was allowed to win because he he, he provided a, a, a sunnier, more optimistic look at the future. And I think people were tired. They were depressed. They were uncertain about the world. And... And here's Reds, which is advocating, you know, class revolution. And I think that's something people didn't really want to think about. There was whether, a whether they were pro-Reagan or whether they were not pro-Reagan. I think there was still a general discomfort in the country that right. that, that Reds probably exacer- were probably exacerbated. I think you're absolutely right, and also the fact that there was a really bad recession at the time. There was yeah. a there was a fuel crisis. People could, were having they were seeing gasoline prices skyrocket. I think in the late '70s, and also, coincidentally, that's the same year. This is the, we're talking about the same year when Argo took place, when the Iran hostage crisis took place, yeah. when people were starting to, to to be to wake up to the idea of international terrorism and the fact that Americans were not safe overseas and so it was beginning to spend people who get scared they say always go turn to conservatism right right, right? And it's true and and i'm sure that that like craig is saying this this really staunch fear of communism even though the movie's about it's a subtle difference of socialism and mm-hmm. communism that's hard to, to get across they just figure it's all one and the same but you're right. I mean, it was it was the era of Gorbachev tear down this wall. You know, what I mean, it was right. like um, they were the boogeyman. Yeah, I really wanted to read you this part in this book about Meryl Streep, and I'm still looking for it, so I'm a little distracted. But 
Um, she did. She did the French Lieutenant's Woman that year, right? That yeah, she was. Yeah. She was up for that. I mean, God, God help anybody who goes up against um, Catherine Hepburn, right? Mm. Um, so she was never going to win, but um, but there's a whole wonderful part about her quote, you know, that talks about Meryl Streep. If I can just find it here. Um, but the thing about Reds is that in its time, I could see how people would be. Um, more emotionally drawn to an easy movie like Chariots of Fire, which was really easy. Let me read you really fast what um, what they wrote write about in, in Inside Oscar about Chariots of Fire. In the United States, the New York Film Festival, Festival helped out by giving Chariots of Fire their prestigious opening night slot. Although film comments Richard Corliss snickered that the film was a hymn to the human spirit, as if scored by Barry Manilow... Variety contended the film was ready-made for American audiences, as between the slapstick comedy and scary contrived schlock that predominate the current marketplace, Chariots offers jaded fans an uncommon chance to relate to believable people in a drama of affecting emotion and tension, plus more than a little social and psychological complexity. Variety's claim was verified by Harry Francis, the manager of the Bruin Theater in Westwood, who declared it and added trade in trade papers in my 50 years as a theater manager i have never witnessed such a thrilling reaction to a film as chariots of fire the words wonderful heartwarming i loved it beautiful film are told to me by countless patrons once the show starts no one leaves their seats vangelis's score with its anachronistic synthesizer became a favorite of both television sports shows and american record buyers (laughs) the film's Mm. opening scene of athletes Running on the beach in slow motion was immediately usurped by parodies and TV commercials. In short, Chariots of Fire was a hit and became the highest-grossing imported film in the United States to date, as you said. But, you know, I mean, that is sort of the model for what we're seeing now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the artist in the King's Speech, this, like, textbook right out of Chariots of Fire playbook, you know? You know, you know Golden- Harvey was thinking of Chariots of Fire when he snapped up the King's Speech, but you know what? King's Speech is a better movie than Chariots of Fire. At least the King's Speech has Jeffrey Rush, and he sort of represents the rumpled middle class sort of thing. And, and, there, and there was a, a good relationship story between the two men, but, but Chariots of Fire doesn't have any of that. It's just a bunch of snooty, upper class Cambridge people <laughs> sticking, sticking it to the Americans and sticking it to the French. And it's just, it, it, it sucks. I I tried to watch it, but I only got through the first part of it. I didn't make it all the way through. I should have started it earlier. But um, I've stood up for a lot of junk over the years that we've gone through, and I've you know I've 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 gone to bat for Rocky and Love Story and a bunch of other crummy movies, but this one just does not. (laughs) It doesn't hold up, and it's what's weird to me is that. It's it's so pro-British, and, so, and there's, a, there's a definite anti-American twinge to it that I'm really surprised that American audiences and Oscar voters fell for it so much. Um, part, part of- and there, were, there were three films that year that, that all were nominated for picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Reds was obviously one of them, and Atlantic City was another one, but so was On Golden Pond. And that, that's the movie. I, I, I can understand why Red's lost because of the politics, but I don't understand how On Golden, on Golden Pond lost to Chariots of Fire when mm. it had these two beloved icon cinema. It had a, a story that's pretty timeless. I mean, it's all about getting old, and it's also all about the whammy that parents put on you, and those are things that everybody has to deal with. Come on, are you paddling? Oh, Sam, paddling. 
You want me to take this to him? I most certainly do not. Can you see them? No. Oh. Oh. Oh, my goodness. There they are. <laughs> oh, they're so beautiful. Yeah, they're huge. I never saw such big loons in my life. <laughs> Those are boats. You poop. Come in closer. A husband and wife. <laughs> I think they're looking at us. Yeah, they are. <laughs> What the hell's the matter with them? Hey, buzz off! Buzz off! Ethel, what are you doing? What do you mean, what am I doing? Don't do that. Why not? You did it. Never mind, I'll explain later. There are ground-level emotional things that still have an impact today, whereas Chariots of Fire just seems stupid now. You would have thought that um, On Golden Pod would have had a great backstory, too, because Jane Fonda started her own production company. She bought the rights to the, to the stage, to the broad, to the stage play. So because she knew it would be the perfect role for her father who had never won an Oscar in his entire Hollywood career. He'd only been nominated once for twice. the great, only twice. Was it really? I know Grace of Wrath and, um, oh shit. I can't remember what the other one was. I just looked 12 uh, Angry Men. Maybe. Probably. Maybe. Probably. That sounds right. And so, so they, they, he, was, he was in failing health, really failing health. It was like his last chance. In fact, the previous year, they had given him the honorary Oscar, thinking that they would never have a chance to give him a real Oscar. So they needed to give him an Oscar while he was still alive. And in fact, he died four months after the Oscars oh. and, and 19, after he won the Oscar for On Golden Pond. And his wife said that probably the prospect of hanging on to wait to see if he could win probably helped keep him alive for the last half half a year mm. of his life. I'm pretty impressed with them that they went with old timers across the board. Henry Fonda, mm. Catherine Hepburn, Maureen Stapleton, and John Gilgood. I mean, come on, that's great. Yeah. That John Gilgood, that. too, who had only, I think, himself only been nominated maybe once before, which I also, I believe John Gilgood is gay, right? He was gay. And, so, and they must have known that. That was another thing that I'd like to see whenever uh, they they don't hold that against an, an actor, you know. They and, said that everybody thought he was snooty and that, that he'd be reading, like, Proust or whatever on the set, but that in fact he was was not snooty at all. He was totally had a crass sense of humor, and he read Harold Robbins books. <laughs> oh yeah, I think he's really body. He's really had a body sense of humor, yeah. so he's a really playful and a, and a rascal. Hobson. Yeah. Do you know what I'm going to do? No, I don't. I'm going to take a bath. I'll alert the media. Do you want to run my bath for me? It's what I live for. Perhaps you'd like me to come in there and wash your dick for you, you little shit. 
You know, he great, tore it up in Arthur, and he was also in actually Chariots of Fire, and he was the best part. He played the snooty Cambridge headmaster, and he was this total anti-Semitic asshole. <laughs> but the way he did it, and knowing what you know about him, knowing that he that he had a had a had sense of humor and he wasn't this upper class nudie person it totally he was totally mocking this character that he was playing and that was the best part of the entire movie oh my god how funny um, well that's another aspect i want to real quickly I, probably another thing that helped cherry sapphire is there was the anti-semitic aspect of the movie that always appeals to a certain to a large number of the of academy members if you if you if you come out against anti-semitism anti-semitism you're that's a that's a point in your favor at the oscars yeah but it's such a tiny watered down part of the movie it's there and it's there on purpose to make you feel something but it's it's so not they make a big deal about it at the beginning but then they kind of they sort of drop it and you know the the abram abramson the 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 jewish guy who was the Mm -hmm. runner he doesn't even get the last heroic race it's the dude that runs for jesus that gets the Mm -hmm. last heroic race so it's like they they throw it in there and then they just kind of let it drop Mm-hmm. But they do still touch a lot of bases that we're going to touch a lot of the of sensitive and and, sensitive and, and uh, sentimental buttons with 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 audience members. It's really, it's really about the feel good movies that really took over the Oscar race and are still winning today. That kind of mm-hmm. easy emotional win where you, you know, I was watching Reds and I was thinking, you know, voters need an incentive to vote for something. Like they need. A push. It has to be either they love the characters and they want to see the characters win, like Slumdog Millionaire and Chariots of Fire, or they want to see the filmmaker triumph, like Robert Redford um, yeah. or ben Martin Affleck. Scorsese or Ben Affleck or, or Sylvester Bigelow. Stallone. Or Sylvester Stallone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I think that um, this case caused... This particular year, unlike what we see now, where we're the only ones pounding our fists against the wall and nobody cares that mm-hmm. King's Speech beat Social Network, there was a huge outcry in Hollywood after uh, Chariots of Fire beat Reds because people did feel that Warren Beatty deserved Best Picture, not just because it was such a trying shoot for him where he was actually t- literally too exhausted to even do the publicity on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everybody in Hollywood thought he should win and... They were cursing the Academy. Like, there was a big uproar in the in the press and, and after the, the night. And, and the filmmakers had to be really defensive about it and actually issue statements saying, you know, defensive statements about how much they appreciate the award and how this guy's a great director and it totally deserved to win. It was like Crash, I guess. It was probably yeah. along those same lines. But it, I think the part of the outcry was we have so much great American product here. Why, yeah. why does an interloper from the U.K. that cost a pittance and, and, and a small-scale movie like, like Cherry Sapphire able to swoop Sweep, swoop in and sweep the Oscars when we For when sure. we have so much great stuff that we, Hollywood is doing. Why yeah. are we giving the award our, our American award to the British movie? There's a quote in here about that where they say that they don't want Hollywood to go back to the era when they all they were doing was rewarding British films in the 1960s, I guess, because in the 1960s yeah. there were all those great, um, fantastic period pieces that came out of um, Great Britain, and a, a lot, so many of the acting awards went to British actors in the 1960s. Yeah, for but, movies uh, like A Man for All Seasons and stuff like that, which were great movies, but at the same time, it's like, what is what are Americans chop liver, right? Right, and so Warren Beatty was kind of like the Ben Affleck, only Ben Affleck's snub came earlier, but mm-hmm. people still rallied around him as someone they knew, and Warren Beatty was a likable enough star that... Um, but I, I do think that Reds is a harder movie to connect to emotionally. It's the kind of movie that 
during the deer hunter era would have won. But during the feel good, you know, um, post Kramer versus Kramer kind of, you know, um, you, you need a heavy emotional response to win Best Picture. Um, Chariots of Fire seemed like the the best choice for people who couldn't quite get behind the other two movies. It still seems weird to me. Like I still oh, I can't know. make sense of because, it because because Reds is one of my very favorite movies of the 1980s. But I think Reds is just a really difficult movie. It's intellectual. The screenplay is really really smart. You have to listen to it in order to appreciate the nuances. It's really long. It's over. It's three hours and fifteen minutes long. It's a long sit. When you read earlier, someone said something like, "No one got up out of their theater seat during Cherries of Fire." Who would ever get up out of their theater seat anyway and leave them? movie and wander around and then come back do people do people do that back then i'm sure they they did with reds because there's a long a lot of scenes in reds where you're in russia or whatever and you have no idea what the fuck's going on i mean you can follow it and you can study it but people are going to be more attached to the love story of reds which is really powerful between the two of them you know but like they're not exactly likable characters neither of them you know like warm Beatty playing directing himself in a movie about a guy who's kind of indulgent, sort of an egomaniac, mm-hmm. Diane Keaton cheating on him, also a, a sort of an egomaniac. You know, they're great, strong, interesting, complex characters, but they're not like the little, you know, paper cutouts in Chariots of Fire, you know, that are like mm-hmm. good, bad, you know. Mm. One thing that I noticed watching it is that um, it is what a job Beatty did. I mean, he's, he's a guy known for having a little bit of an ego and yet he had the self-confidence to give, to, to let Diane Keaton pretty much run with it. And mm. she knocked us out of the park. And most of the best scenes are between her and Jack Nicholson. For Beatty sure. kind of steps aside and lets those two totally own every scene that they're in. And he has the self-confidence to do that, which you would not expect from somebody who, has an ego the way he is renowned to have. Yeah. I, I think I thought it was a really remarkable job. Yeah, he led, she owns the movie. It's her movie. It's more of her movie than it is his. Mm-hmm. But can, you, can we just say how remarkable it is that two no, movies in a row with, with um, Heaven Can Wait and Reds, Warren Beatty was nominated in four different categories mm-hmm. two years in a row for Best Director, Best Producer, Best Writer, and Best Actor. Wow. You know, that's rare enough to happen once, but to do that two movies in a row for Heaven Can Wait and Reds is extraordinary. And he had been nominated in 1981 for a total of 10 Oscars over the past 15 years. And so it was pretty much time for him to win one. I'd also like to say that, that it's pretty amazing that for, you know, once again, we're still in an era where the all all five of the Best Picture nominees feature very strong female roles i mean who could forget Mm -hmm. susan sarandon in atlantic city and who can forget karen allen in raiders of the lost ark we haven't talked much about that movie but if there was another movie besides jaws and star wars that defined my own childhood it was raiders of the lost ark um, which i saw so many times i actually with my friends sat down and wrote down every line from that movie into a journal oh that's so sweet because we knew every line to that Mm -hmm. movie every single line and I, you just don't see characters like that anymore. I mean, t- today in Superman, or yesterday, or whatever, that was the closest I've seen in a while to the kind of flavor that you used to get in the 70s. Where, mm-hmm. I mean, look at that character of Louise Bryant. Look at what that film allowed us to see her go through. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't just a supporting player. She wasn't just... In fact, she makes a point not to be. You know, and she wasn't put too. on a pedestal either. She wasn't made to be perfect. She was she was flawed as, as flawed as all of the men in the movie, but she was allowed to have her flaws. 
flaws and just like Sasha said, you said earlier, her complexity, you could see in every scene the emotions running across her face and behind her eyes. There's like five different things going on in her head at, at the same time. Yeah, I was and, reading and, it, and the the, so the the legend goes that um, they had such a difficult shoot that they broke up actually mm-hmm, during so. it, and that he pressured her to get that performance out of her um, so hard that people were actually worried about her mental health during the shoot, like that he was going to break her wow. the way that, that John Reed, Jack Reed breaks Louise Bryant. And so I watched the movie knowing that, and I never saw any evidence of her losing her focus for this part. Like she is, I've seen Diane Keaton lose it in movies like shoot the moon. And she mm-hmm. always has these like hysterical scenes where she's all over the place. But man, in that movie, she's just laser like focus all the way through. I especially love when she tells off Eugene O'Neill, <laughs> you know, when he tells her off after she comes back to him after there and she's like, you know, looking for sex and, she just nails it, you know, she hits it. She hits him below the belt and, and you hear him say Louise as she's walking out the door. Sit down. How's Jack? Oh he's fine. He's uh he's in Russia. Is he? Yes, he's trying to get recognition from the common turn for the Communist Labor Party. You see they they split into two different factions. And you? Left alone with your work again? No. Well, actually, yes, but my work is different now. I do a lot of lecturing about what I saw in Russia. Ah, yes, Russia. Russia's been good for you and Jack. Giving you a way to meet people, giving him a reason to leave home. Russia. Russia. Are you really that cynical or are you angry with me? I'm really that cynical. Why would I be angry with you? Jean, if you'd been to Russia, you'd never be cynical about anything again. You would have seen people transformed, ordinary Louise, people. something but... in me tightens when an American intellectual's eyes shine and they start to talk to me about the Russian people. Something in me says, watch it. A new version of Irish Catholicism is being offered for your faith. And I wonder why a lovely wife like Louise Reed, who's just seen the brave new world, is sitting around with a cynical bastard like me, instead of trotting all over Russia with her idealistic husband. It's uh, almost worth being converted. Well, I was wrong to come. You and Jack have a lot of middle-class dreams for two radicals. Jack dreams that he hustle the American working man, whose one dream is to be rich enough not to have to work, into a revolution led by his party. And you dream that if you discuss the revolution with a man before you go to bed with him, it'll be missionary work rather than sex. I'm sorry to see you and Jack so serious about your sports. It's particularly disappointing in you, Louise. You had a lighter touch when you were touting free love. Well, you've become quite the critic, haven't you, Gene? Just lean back and analyze us all. Duplicitous women who tout free love and then get married. Power-mad journalists who join the revolution instead of observing it. Middle-class radicals who come looking for sex and then talk about Russia. It must seem so contemptible to a man like you who has the courage to sit on his ass and observe human inadequacy from the inside of a bottle. Well, I've never seen you do anything for anyone. I've never seen you give anything to anyone so I can understand why you might suspect the motives of those who have. But whatever Jack's motives are, how... I seem to have touched a wound. 
You're a wounding son of a bitch, and whatever I've done to you, you've made me pay for it. Louise? That's, such a that's, that's why, in a way, as, as great as it is to know that Katharine Hepburn ended her career with winning four, four, having four Oscars, did she really need that fourth Oscar? I would have really, really preferred Diane Keaton to have won that year. I think that it really was a better, has to be considered, and for me, a better performance than what Katharine Hepburn did in, in Golden Pond, just because it it's so much more has so much more depth in it, so the, the it's more, so much more intelligence behind it. But people were in love with Katharine Hepburn in that movie. I mean, oh, sure. everybody yeah. was. And I think, and rightfully so. But Ryan's right; it wasn't as good of a performance. It's not. It's just. It's just her being wonderful, you know. Yeah. But it shows you how their loyalties were torn between these movies. The way they handed out these Oscars, you can tell that they really loved all of them. Yeah, it was all over the map that year. For any, for a Best Picture winner to only win three, to only win four Oscars, that's that's that that's that's like King's Speech. Right, and and later Argo and Argo. Crash and Argo both only took home three. Yeah. I want to say about um, Jack Nicholson, too, that's probably his best performance after the after his peak in the, in the mid-'70s. Probably he never was better after, after I can't think of when, he, when he's been better as playing Eugene O'Neill. And did you know that, um, that Eugene O'Neill's daughter was married to Charlie Chaplin? Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. They, they, she got married to him when she was 17 years old. This is the first that I I just read that a couple of days ago, and I was amazed to hear that. I knew that her name, Una O'Neill Chaplin, but I didn't know that she was Eugene O'Neill's daughter. Yeah, and he, he was, never a, made he was an old-timer when she, they married. She wrote, she wrote a personal note to Jack Nicholson, and she said to him, after a lifetime of acquired indifference, the inevitable finally happened. Thank you, dear Jack. I finally fell in love with my father. Oh. Wow. So happy Father's Day. That's nice. It is sweet. You know, it has to have meant a lot to him. It was kind of a scandal when he married her, though, because I think he was like old Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, and she like it would have been no matter how old he was. She was seventeen, so that's kind of weird. But he was old, old. (laughs) He wasn't just like thirty-five or whatever. He was old. (laughs) I have to look it up to see, but I'm pretty sure he. And I have to say, oops, I made a big oops here earlier because I'm seeing this quote now from Warren Beatty, where he says he wants to give thanks to Paramount and to Gulf Western for financing a three and a half hour romance, which attempts to reveal for the first time just something about the beginnings of American socialism and American communism. Mm. So even Warren Beatty says communism. So you guys were on the money when you think that there was a blurred of the line there between whether it was socialism or communism that they were depicting. So I, you're right. And I'm wrong. I think it was like, um, uh, Maureen Stapleton, um, was like the socialist and, and Jack Reed was dipping into communism. That's how yeah. I sort of saw it. But I, okay. you know, it was a little over my head. Can I read my Meryl Streep thing that I found? Yeah. Yes. All right. So Meryl Streep was of course coming up big time back now, you know, back then she was already, um, she'd already won. She'd already Oscar won. For- the previous year. Yeah, and so she comes along with the French Lieutenant's woman. So um, back in 1968, John Fowles thought Vanessa Redgrave would make the ideal French Lieutenant's woman. A dozen years later, he put his money on Meryl Streep. Even so, he said that she was very shy about me. When I appeared on the set, she'd hide. She had some extraordinary notion that I didn't want an American actress. But there's no English actress of her age group who could have done it. The coveted role landed Streep on the cover of Time. 
And now that Sidney Sklosky had retired, the magazine took it upon itself to give the actress a tin-type profile. Streep is now and forever a New Yorker, without a trace of tan or of West Coast showbiz gloss. She bounces into a, a magazine photo session wearing a, dime, wearing a dime store sundress and dark glasses held together by a safety pin. She is a resolute rider of the subways. Streep is a liberal who was outraged by the Reaganauts in Washington and a feminist who supports the ERA and who gets angry at the way films exploit women in sex scenes. The Los Angeles Examiner raved, We can believe this woman is all things, crazy, visionary, pure, despoiled, because Streep has incorporated all the possibilities into her performance. But the New York Daily News thought the actress seemed somewhat constrained for a woman who is supposed to represent the untamed forces of nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was this writing contemporary at the time? Yeah. You just read, what's interesting about that is how much hype and pressure was on her and how she's actually surpassed the expectations that people put on her. I know. She's amazing. It's it's interesting to see, too, how important a a cover shot on Time Magazine or Newsweek or Life Magazine was back then. That was that had a lot to do with your with your with your Oscar campaigning. That's when you mentioned earlier that Warren Beatty was so exhausted after eighteen a full eighteen months of filming and editing Reds, he was too exhausted to do any Oscar campaigning. And so they had these big profiles planned for him for Time magazine and the New York Times magazine and he had to cancel on them and so they canceled the covers and that probably really hurt the chances for Best Picture. Because he oh, wasn't I'm able sure. to you know he didn't do the Ben the Ben Affleck dance. He couldn't. Yeah. And he they needed to do that for the Oscars for sure. He yeah. needed to do well, that. Well, thank God they still had the presence of mind to give him Best Director. Yeah. Absolutely right. That's a, such a, a great thing that he did at least win that, and um, so that people looking back over Oscar history can wonder what that was all about, how that came about, why that it was split that year between Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah. So they will seek out both movies. Well, apparently there was also, I mean, I really do think that it came down to a hardcore split between Reds and On Golden Pond and the people who probably didn't see see Reds because they mm-hmm. just, you know, the whatever, the sound guys or whatever who didn't see Reds yeah. or didn't get Reds saw Chariots of Fire and loved it. You know, it, it, it's such yeah. a, um, an easy movie to love, but it is inexplicable still and it resonates today. What a shame and how deserving Reds was. It doesn't diminish it as a film at all that it didn't win. Uh, you once, never th- once again, it just diminishes Oscar. It just diminishes mm-hmm. them and their their terrible choices. Yeah, I probably it may be. I don't know. It's hard to even have any way to even guess the popularity of movies now among audiences. Now, I'm sure that anyone who watches Jared's of Fire*, a lot of people will still love it for the same reasons they loved it back then, and a lot of people will still find *Reds* difficult and lengthy and talky Mm -hmm. for 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 the same way that it was regarded back then but another movie that was completely overlooked that was that was an import that was really shoulders head and shoulders above cherry sapphire that came out in 1981 was gallipoli Mm. peter weir's movie gallipoli which is a masterpiece yeah mel gibson but not only that peter weir's one of his very first movies it won like uh, you know eight or nine australian film institute Oscars or the equivalent of the Oscars, but it didn't get any Oscar nominations at all. Not any. It's amazing to me that it was completely overlooked. Wow. Another pretty dark and challenging film, though, right? Oh, yeah, really dark. And, I, you know, talk about, I mean, that movie can make me cry just thinking about it. It's so sad. Yeah. 
It's so um, tragic. So some of the movies that didn't get nominated um, that year, Pennies from Heaven, SOB, Cutter's Way, Body Heat, which is like one of the best movies to come out that year. Cutter's Way is a masterpiece, too. I want to encourage anybody who hasn't seen Cutter's Way to, to seek it out. To me, Cutter's Way is like the Chinatown of the 1980s. Yeah. It is on that level for me. Strange it, behavior. It fell off the radar at the time. I can't remember why, but it kind of got buried, and it I sort think- of has re- developed a reputation on video subsequently. Mm-hmm. I think part of it may have been that it was one. Of, it was United Artists' last big um, chance at the Oscars, and then United Artists fa- failed. You know, you know, folded after that, and United Artists sort of had a stink on them, and so nobody wanted to touch United Artists' product. But it was the last major film from United Artists. Let me just say really quickly on, on this subject because I happened to just be, I was glancing over Best Picture. Um, nominees and the studios that they came from, I noticed that between 1957 and 1977, in that 20-year span, United Artists had 17 Oscar nominees. Mm -hmm. 17 out of the 20 years it had an Oscar nominee. And 1977 with Annie Hall was the last time because because United Artists collapsed. So how sad is that? It's pretty sad, yeah. All right, so finishing up with My Dinner with Andre, The Howling, Rich and Famous, and Mommy Dearest. Um, I just have to say that the that Body Heat is one of the great undiscovered classics. And, you know, my friend Michael, who was on two weeks ago, he and I, it's like our movie. We could both of the us know every line, and we quote it to each other constantly. That one still <laughs> holds up really well, too. That's a great, great movie. It's I, great I remember that being kind of a, a, an icon at the time, though, too. It yeah. was like a big thing because the sex scenes were so hot for the day. I remember that, but I don't remember people really sinking into what a good movie it was. And after that, Lawrence Kasdan started to really come up in prominence. And part of that was people appreciating what a great noir body mm-hmm. heat was and how it wasn't just... I mean, it is the hot sex scenes, but it's, she is such a diabolical character. And then mm-hmm. Mommy Dearest um, also still resonates today. And what a great performance by Joan Crawford. Um, by, uh, <laughs> Faye Dunaway. <laughs> Not nominated. Hard to believe that she wasn't nominated. Yeah. It was just a really strong year for actresses that year. But looking back on it, such an iconic performance. Although, you know, sure, campy. Maybe too campy. Maybe they thought it was too... And also maybe Hollywood was it took offense a little bit because it, it sort of tore down one of their icons. I'm not sure what their, how it was regarded back then. But it's hard to imagine that Faye Dunaway is not nominated for Mommy mm. Dearest. My God. I know. But it, you're right. It was a joke. It turned into a joke. Yeah. Last week, uh, Sasha mentioned um, the makeup work in Elephant Man and how that led to the creation of the best makeup category. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that, obviously, this was the first year that they had that. And Rick Baker won for An American Werewolf in London, which is a totally deserved deserved reward. Those were revolutionary uh, makeup effects at the time, mm. bef- long before you know CGI kind of ruined all of that. Mm. Yeah, to to look at that now, to look at the transformation from human to wolf, and to know that those are all practical effects, that that was not done with any CGI, that it was all in camera. It's amazing, mm-hmm. you know, to see his hands and feet and face change like that, to to to, to be twisted and torn into into wolf shapes. It's incredible, and I love yeah. that movie, American Werewolf in London, is fantastic. One of the great horror films of the 1980s. Yeah, and when you think about that, I mean, it's it's interesting to go back and look at an era where. At first glance, it seems like the movies started to kind of really suck in the 80s. But, you know, you can just dig in and find these really great films that pop out. It's, you, um, can, you can think that they suck if you just look at the Oscar nominees. That's the sad thing about yeah. it. If you just look at the movies that Oscar nominates, then you think, well, what happened to the movies in the That's 80s? Right. Well, it's just because the Oscars weren't nominating them. There were still some fantastic movies, but they were overlooked. And remember... Movies that, that, I'm sorry, just movies, even even uh, movies that weren't nominated for... for 
for best foreign film either, like Das Boot. Right, you know? right. It was 1971, 1981. And I was going to say Taps came out um, then, mm. and that was a really good movie. Sean Penn's first movie. Yeah, and was Tom it, yeah. Cruise, an early role for Tom Cruise. So the yeah, box that. office was Raiders of the Lost Ark took the number one spot with $212 million. Right after that on Golden Pond, believe it wow. or not. Wow, can you believe that? Pretty far oh back, though, what's the amount yeah. done on Golden Pond? $119 million. That's still, what, half of what Raiders got? And Superman 2 was number three. And then Arthur, Stripes, Cannonball Run, <laughs> Chariots of Fire, number seven, which is huge, that it took it, that, that little movie that could made it all the way up to number I would be seven. curious to know how much of it came after Oscar and how much of it came yeah, before. good point. Um, that's a really good point. Um, for Your Eyes Only, James Bond, The Four Seasons, Time Bandits. Remember Time Bandits? Yep. Flash mm-hmm. of the Titans, Absence of Malice, and then Reds comes in way down at number 13. I don't care, though. I mean, if you if you do that kind of a film achievement, I mean, I felt that way about Lincoln. It's like, you know, respect must be paid. It, it matters less to me what they quote-unquote like, the whole ticking, kitten in a teacup thing. It's like, so what? You know, can't you think bigger than that? Can't you make mm-hmm. the Best Picture Award mean something more than just, oh, I really liked that movie? Yeah, when you see that they don't, when they, when they year after year after year, they have, that they have four fantastic nominees, and they seem to always go for the safest, most tame, timid movie of the five nominees, then it really diminishes what the Oscar for Best Picture means. Absolutely, yeah. It's sad, too, because just 10 or 15 years before, they were throwing Oscars at David Lean, who did the same kind of, which, which is the kind of movies he did that remind me of Reds, which are these big, sweeping, historical, epic movies with romances at their core that have a lot of deep themes to them, and they're complicated and challenging. But it, it, Hollywood seemed to be able to reward those without a second thought, and yet by 1981, it's like you're um, almost pulling teeth. That's right. That's exactly how it went down i don't think reds would have had a problem winning in the in the 70s can i say no. one more thing uh, since i mean i know that it seems like that we 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 do we spend a lot of time running down the movies that do win oscars but i would want to say that one thing that really irritated me about argo the stuck a movie can lose me a movie can really lose me at a lot of points and it can never get me back and there were several points like that in argo and one point when when uh, alan arkin and john goodman are meeting in the in the office with a screenwriter and he supposedly has that really snappy dialogue where he talks about how i met my pal warren Beatty at uh, at uh, Trader Vic's, and Warren Beatty was supposed to make a movie called Zulu Empire, but they couldn't make Zulu Empire because mm. the cannibals wanted to have their, you know, their SAG cards or whatever. That's all bullshit because that was taking place in 1980 when Warren Beatty was busy making Reds. So Warren Beatty would never have considered making a movie as stupid as Zulu Empire at the peak of his career, and to diminish <laughs> Warren Beatty's career, to diminish him. I mean, of all the people they could have attacked and used to pull out a to name drop to, to make. Warren Beatty looked like that he was making a movie called Zulu Empire when he was, in, the, in fact, in the middle of making Reds. It just infuriates me. Oh, that's that, so funny that, that, that Hollywood put those would not have any more respect for history than that. Oh, it's hysterical. But that's typical of Chris Terrio, who I think wrote a very tight, very entertaining screenplay. But he wrote it so fast, it wasn't it wasn't about depth. It was about wit and pacing. Yeah, and, and not fact-checking, apparently. No fact-checking at all. Oh. So <laughs> I just want to say that... Um, Interestingly about the Oscar races, sometimes a, a hideous debacle can lead to a better choice the following year, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they picked Gandhi the next year because Gandhi was that big epic that, you know. They, and another they, British movie, but at least it was a high-quality epic 
movie in the in the vein of David Lean, right? It was it a British movie though? Yeah, mm-hmm. Richard Attenborough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh god, that must British, have pissed British them producers. off. That must have really yeah. pissed them off that another British movie. Was. I think so, but you know, then then after we talk about Gandhi next week, we won't have to talk about any more British Best Picture winners for another decade or more because I think the Academy really got fed up with that idea, and they didn't even nominate any more Best Pictures for. From, from the UK for a long, long time, and they certainly didn't come close to winning for a long time because mm-hmm. back-to-back wins for the UK for Cherries of Fire and Gandhi, that was too much for the Academy to stomach, I think. I guess so, but it did seem like um, they really went with, you know, the epic after Red's loss. It sort of seemed like they were trying to mm-hmm. redeem themselves after that little movie. Um, I could be wrong. That's just a theory I'm throwing out there. Because then it was like Terms of Endearment. Then it was Amadeus. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do I know? I always I try David to find... Attenborough, but save your cards and letters. I know I meant to say Richard Attenborough, who directed Gandhi. Oh, did I say David? Mm-hmm. No, I did. I, oh. I was just correcting my own mistake. It's all about me, Sasha. And no, no. And, <laughs> and listen, in 1985's uh, Winner Out of Africa, that is such a boring movie. I'm sorry, but it is. It makes Reds I'm look have like... To, when we get to 1985, I'm going to have to stand up for Out of Africa. That movie, <laughs> I can just think about it. I can just think about more, I can just think about Meryl Streep's opening a voiceover. And any at any point in that, just thinking about that movie, it can make me cry. That movie Aww. gets to me for some reason. It really touches my heart. I love I it that, that it, a movie that's starring a, a woman won. I love that about it. But I really felt like... Um, well, I mean, it, it was up against Witness, Pritzi's Honor, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Color Purple. Yeah, we, so. I, we would have, it would have been great to see The Color Purple win, but for some reason they weren't ready for Spielberg yet. And we should mention, too, that the Raiders of the Lost Ark was the first time that Spielberg was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director. Which he wasn't for Color Purple, yeah. He didn't yeah. get a Best mm-hmm. Director nomination. So their choices were pretty limited that year. But I'm just saying, it's we're getting now, as we get up in through the 80s and then into the 90s, it's just going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. But, um, but Chariots of Fire beating Rez was a real low point. <laughs> I think so, and I really it's think much worse. It's much worse than ordinary people beating. Way uh, worse, way uh, worse. Raging Bull, because it's a much, much worse movie, and it's really. Uh, I, I don't remember hating it this much back in the day, but watching it today, it was just sort of appalling. And it's like this is the kind of movie that makes people hate Oscar. Oh yeah, no, and it took people a really long time to get over it, and they still aren't don't, aren't really over it. Like people don't really stand up for Chariots of Fire as as they do with like Rocky and. Um, other movies that, you know, people say shouldn't have won, but Shakespeare and Love, for instance. But um, but Chariots of Fire was really was just very thin. I can appreciate how people have an affection for the sentimentality of On Golden Palm, but I've never been fond of that movie at all. I think it's really syrupy and hokey and, and <laughs> cool. It's really manipulative. And you, did you know that when he won the Oscar, the screenwriter won the Oscar for Best um, Screenplay that year? He got up on stage, and part of his acceptance speech was, meet me after the show, and I'll suck face with all of you. Oh, God. I'll suck face with you? I mean, yeah, because of the li- but that line bugs me, too, because did anybody really in 1980, did a guy, did kids, did boys say to girls, let's go someplace and suck face? Yes, I can't, I can't imagine that they did. Really? They did, yes. It was slang at the time. It absolutely was. And that was, was a huge, that was, like a, that was like a cultural thing, too. After the movie came out, everybody was saying that. So, of course, he said that in his speech. Yeah, oh, no, I it see. was. Let's go suck face. It was 
really definitely. I just never could get that. It sounds so. I mean, suck ass. I can understand. Suck dick. You know, <laughs> sure. Anytime, let's do it. But I can never understand. You know, well, suck face where it, it comes from. It certainly didn't last, but it was definitely a saying. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for telling me because I, I maybe I, I won't have a hold a grudge against that line anymore. <laughs> I think it's a little cheesy in places, um, but I think that the sentiment overrides all of that because of, mainly because of the performances of Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, and um, Catherine. Oh, yeah, Henry. and the whole well, subtext of him being pretty much a shitty father in real life and not getting along really well with his daughter. I think that you're, you're thinking of that while you're watching, and that, and that adds a whole other layer of complexity that it might not have had with any other actors. I forgot to turn the fan off here in, in the office while we were recording. I hope that you're not going to hear a roar on the recording. I didn't Can you hear, hear anything. It? Okay, good. No, just, that was it. just me during talking about Henry Castle. <laughs> 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 that, um, that, that purring sound. That little purse vibrator. No. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you know, I really, I really enjoyed the movie on so many oh. levels that, that I would, I, I'm ready to go see it again. <laughs> I am. I mean, I don't, and I did. I I could barely get sit through um, Star Trek Into Darkness. You know what though? Star Trek Into Darkness has an opening that reminded me so much of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he's being chased, when they mm-hmm. they're being chased at the very beginning of the movie, and they have to jump over the cliff. That seemed like an almost an homage to Raiders of the Lost. That Ark. That wouldn't surprise me because J.J. Abrams really wants to be Steven Spielberg, like oh, nobody's yeah. business. He is <laughs> he's his not apprentice. even close, but that's what he wants. He's his little apprentice, but um, but. Uh, George Lucas and, and um, Steven Spielberg got together, and uh, he was going to. Um, George Lucas was going to direct it, and when he told Spielberg about it, Spielberg said, "Oh, I would love to do that." And then they were going to cast Tom Selleck, Yikes. and he had just gotten Magnum PI, and he turned uh-huh. him down. Thank God! <laughs> Thank God! They say in unison. <laughs> so we don't have I love to Tom Selleck, but he's no Han Solo, no. and he's no Indiana Jones, but not with that porn mustache. Oh, seventies porn mustache. <laughs> It would have been so bad with Tom Selleck. <laughs> <laughs> it's really Raiders good. Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of those movies where things where it seems like so unlikely that that would ever work, but it it is so much one. That's one, and it's one of those movies that Spielberg does that is so kinetic that it not only has great moments, but the moments connect from t- from 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 climax to climax so seamlessly. It's incredibly well put together that movie. Yeah, and no, at the it's time perfect. there was nothing else like it. I mean, obviously they were riffing off of old serials, but it transcended those and, and gave people something totally different from what they'd seen before. And that's the thing about you, you were talking about the top four box office earners at the time were both Lucas, were all for Lucas and Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But each one of them was unique, and each one of them was different from anything that had come before it. And the problem now is that they've tried to replicate movies like those, and they're just carbon exactly. copies. And they're never as good. That's exactly right. And when um, somebody had written up a story criticizing Steven Spielberg and George Lucas for um, coming down on the effects industry that they helped to build, in fact, that they birthed, and it's true that they did. But the difference was they were directors in control of the story. It wasn't about the special effects as much. Well, maybe with George Lucas, maybe. But it was really with Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws. That's, it's the direction. You know, maybe and they really were well written too. They had they had really well written moments, and the the scripts were just crackerjack. Yeah, and and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws both, but mainly Raiders is is really carefully storyboarded, and every scene is so 
perfectly executed. And he had been coming down off of 1941, which apparently was considered a flop at the time. Mm-hmm. So he had something to prove. And when Spielberg has something to prove, that's when he's at his best. Watch out. Yeah, like with Lincoln and with Jaws and with Raiders. Um, it, it's when he's sort of cruising that he doesn't, that he isn't at his best, I think. But mm. Raiders, he was really focused. Um, it was tight. And I think it won editing. Michael Kahn, it won editing, um, which Reds did not, and Reds kind of deserved it. But Raiders, too, deserved it. You can't say it. When didn't. you compare the action in Raiders to the action today in terms of the hyperkinetic, fast editing, confuso vision that they use so much now, I, I, I'm happy that Michael Kahn won because back then you could tell where people were in relation to each other when they were fighting and, and the scenes flowed together naturally and beautifully and they were exciting to watch and now they're just confusing and stupid. And there's so many great shots in Raiders like when she falls into the snake pit um, and, you know, she's just holding on and like her dress flare is open. Mm-hmm. You know, that shot. And, I mean, you can just go through the movie and it's like, it's like it is a master class in directing. Every single shot is set up the way they teach you in film school that films should be made. You know, like this is, they're so beautifully composed. Um, yeah, that's like film school 101, just watching it. It really is. And people who underestimate that movie just haven't really paid close enough attention, I think, to how good it really is. So props to the Oscars really that year for, for seeing that, for seeing that an action a movie that was really a, that some they might have thought was a throwback to like the Saturday afternoon serials that they saw that it was an excellent movie and that they gave it so many nominations including best picture and best director right because there were a lot of movies that that did well um that were considered effects movies or whatever it's the same as today the same complaints that they had now that we have now which are magnified they had then about the kinds of movies people were paying money to see but I think they recognize with Spielberg and Lucas, especially George Lucas with um, only Star Wars Episode Four and then Empire Strikes Back, I think every other Star Wars movie after that is a piece of crap. Mm. Sorry, Star Wars fans, but really, give me a break. The first well, Star be- Wars... Sorry, go ahead. The, the first two, I think, were, were really the masterpieces. And then after that, I think that it almost... I don't know what it's like to suddenly be a billionaire when you're a struggling filmmaker and, you can, can, and you're making a little movie like THX 1138 and the next thing, the next day you wake up and you're a billionaire and you have that industry to support and, and you know that people are clamoring to see more and more and more of the same thing. I don't know what that does to a person and how you can really... How, how you're able to resist that. And so it's, I feel almost sorry for, for George Lucas in a way that he wasn't able to, to handle it better. Yeah, but when it, you have it, nothing you know, to so lose. We're feeling sorry for our billionaire. Right. No, I know. Um, one of the three Oscars that Reds won was for Best Cinematography mm. for my man, Vittorio Storato, who shot The Conformist and shot Apocalypse Now and yeah. shot... You know, so and incredible, and that guy can talk about. If you want your movie to look fabulously well lit, you know that uh, Victorio Storaro is the guy, is your go-to guy in the in the 1970s and 80s. Oh my God, that is so true. There are so many. I have never seen in any movie Diane Keaton lit so beautifully as she is in Reds. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that cinematographer took all of Beatty's love for her, mm-hmm. and really. And she's been in some great movies, you know. All those Woody Allen movies were lensed by the best, you know. But right. mm-hmm. but that movie, there's just something that really captures her delicateness. Uh, every strand it's of important hair. Because she has to seem super desirable to all of these strong men, and it works. 
Yeah, and mm-hmm. her eyes and her face. She almost looks like a different person than you're, you've seen in movies. Well, you know, Storaro shot Last Tango in Paris, and he shot Apocalypse Now. He yeah. shot most of Bertolucci's films there for a while. He shot Luna and uh, The Last Emperor. He won three Oscars, the guy, and one of his Oscars was for Reds. And so he talked about knowing how to light a face. He, 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 he could do it. Did yeah. Storaro do the later Bertolucci um, Dreamers, or was that somebody else? I don't see that he did. No, I don't think yeah. that he did. Yeah. Never mind. He does, she, has, she shot another movie with, with Warren Beatty. He shot Bullworth with Warren Beatty, and he shot Dick Tracy. Remember Dick, Dick Tracy, how mm-hmm. groundbreaking that was with the primary colors and everything? Mm-hmm. That was the only thing good about that movie was, was the look of it. <laughs> yeah. And he shot Tucker, The Man in His Dream, which was, late, which was uh, Francis Ford Coppola's, one of his last great movies of the era. God, he has to be one of the best ever, isn't he? Yeah, that cinematographer. I'm telling you, you see, see the conformist. It'll, it'll, it'll. It's like soaking your eyeballs in loveliness, taking <laughs> your eyeballs out and soaking them in in color. Wow. Well, Res is pretty impressive to look at. In fact, that is one of its its most prominent features is the cinematography for sure. And you know it when you see it. And you don't really see a lot of movies that rich and beautifully shot anymore. Mm. I wanted, just wanted to mention that because, you know, when we talk about the, the way the, the movies of the 70s had a certain look, it's because of a handful of cinematographers who were the go-to guys back then. There's always six or seven cinematographers in every decade who the directors always turn to to do their most prestigious films, and they determine the look of the decade. And, and, and Storero spilled over a little bit from the 1970s into the 1980s. It's interesting because Rad's looks like a '70s picture, and yet it doesn't. It still looks it still looks a little bit more modern than, say, Godfather or Chinatown or movies like that. But it still definitely has that 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 feeling to it. That you know, another great thing about black surrounds. Yeah, I mean, the sure. black surrounds. Yeah, you know, I was about to say the great thing about Reds and really a groundbreaking thing that's been used so many times since then. Those interview segments in Reds must have been a huge influence on Ken Burns. For one thing, and they were a huge influence on Spielberg too, because he used those those interview intros to to the episodes of Band of Brothers. I'm really glad you when, brought that up because um, that that was one of the more remarkable things about the movie, and I had totally forgotten that those were in there. But how much they added to it, and and how unusual that was for a narrative film. I mean, you expect that sort of thing from a documentary, but mm-hmm. it seems totally out of left field for a narrative film, and it worked beautifully. And, you know, we should have, if we had been paying attention, if we had been alive and watching the Oscar race, then we might have known something was up when Reds didn't win costume and lost to Chariots of Fire. Because Reds mm-hmm. deserved to win that. And if it was headed for an epic sweep, it would have won that award. In I fact, think I it remember, won. I'm pretty sure that I read that when, when, when Chariots of Fire won the Oscar for Best Costume, that Warren Beatty leaned over and he put his head in his hands because he knew that spelled doom. Because look at the costumes in Chariots of Fire. You've got a bunch of guys running around in their white underwear. I know. Movie, right? <laughs> what it's are a the really bad sign. There? So if they can give costumes to that movie instead of Reds, which had amazing-looking costumes. I know. I've watched, means trouble. I've watched enough of these hideous Oscar letdown years to know that... When a movie like that doesn't win something it's supposed to, that's bad. That's a bad sign. Yeah, the they, they, the you, could, you could do that. Yeah, the writing is on the wall. You could sort of take the early wins, the, the early wins in, in the craft categories at the early part of the evening to, to sort of um, 
take the temperature of the room to know wh- where things were headed, and it, that right. was not a good sign. No, and and that it didn't win. I mean, it, it if it was going to win Best Picture, we we know this because we've gone through this little dance so many times, like we did with Lincoln. Um, if it was going to win Best Picture, it would have won costume. It would have beat Raiders of the Lost Ark for um, art direction. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> which did, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I love that movie. I dearly love it, but it did not deserve to win art direction. <laughs> that's that's right. bad. Reds should have won art direction in a walk, you know, and yeah. if, um, uh, heaven's gate was up for art direction. Also, we should mention, we talked about mm-hmm. it last week, but actually it was eligible for Oscars this year. Um, I think at the end of the evening when there were only four or five Oscars left to be handed out, Reds and Cherries of Fire were both tied with three wins. And so at that point, it still almost could have tipped in either direction. So there may still have been a little bit of hope. But then I think that the Cherries of Fire win best screenplay. Um, On Golden Pond and... Yep, Cherries of Fire won best best writer. So when that happened, then that that was it. That was and it beat Reds for screenplay. Warren Beatty, it beat Reds for screenplay. What kind of idiot are you to do that? Screenplay that Warren Beatty had been writing since 1966 that he had been working on and polishing and perfecting since 1966. Oh, that's so painful. Oh, oh my God. That's like Tony Kushner losing Lincoln to me. That's that's the Mm -hmm. same kind of pain I felt for that. So true. So true we would have oh, we would have been we we would have been so depressed oscar night in 1981 huh if we'd been blogging back then <laughs> oh my god it yeah. would have been bad so angry oh we would twitter we would have been so mad we would have been blocking <laughs> people right and you know the weinstein co would have been behind <laughs> absolutely <laughs> right. i said it at the beginning that this was this must have been the template that gave harvey all his ideas Oh, and David yeah. Russell would have directed on Golden Pond. I'm sorry, but oh. how you should be disqualified if you didn't give Red's best screenplay. I know, I know. I all know that what... history, all that that wonderful stuff with Eugene O'Neill and Emma Goldman. It's the politics, man. People were pissed off at the politics. I think at least some of them. I mean, obviously Hollywood is known for being liberal, but I think there's still a strong older conservative element, and probably even more so back then than there is now. But oh, that, yeah, I think. That really shows you where the night was headed with with that. Mm. that. Yeah, liberal. This idea of liberal Hollywood. I know there is a liberal Hollywood, and they're really outspoken. They may be even loud, so you notice them more. But we cannot ever discount the fact that there's a conservative Hollywood too. Well, remember they booed Michael Moore when he spoke out. Cat, come oh, here, cat. Come here. What? What's wrong? When he spoke out against the Iraq war and President Bush, he got booed off the stage. So, you know, they, they act like they're... And I remember that there's always been a kind of... Uh, as your Clint cat, Eastwood, your cat was booing Roger Moore there. <laughs> he was really upset that Chariots of Fire won screenplay. I'm sorry, but that's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, no, at least if ridiculous. it wasn't going to be Reds, it could have been Atlantic City or even Arthur, for God's sake. Yeah. Absence of Malice is not a good movie. <laughs> it should not be on here. I don't, I don't remember it well. I remember, I remember it being important because it was a Paul Newman movie, but I don't remember the movie itself very well. It's terrible. I tried to watch it, and I'm, that's my favorite genre, thrillers. And I love the both of them to death, those two actors. But boy, was that a bad movie. Are we overlooking Boring. any winners that we should have that we should have touched on? Significant th- happenings. I'm glad you brought up the thing about best makeup thing because we were we weren't sure, Sasha, last week when you mentioned that they that they that they instituted the best makeup award after the Elephant Man didn't win. We weren't positive if that was correct or not. But but Craig, you're you're right. They did the following year. They they 
best makeup became a category the first yeah. first and Raiders handily won and easily won the effects award. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ragtime and Pennies from Heaven were also, you know, in in the, in reality, not in weird Oscar fake reality in the Oscar bubble, as we can call mm-hmm. it now. Well, I, I um, have those a, movies I would have Ragtime. been. Ragtime was directed by Milos Forman, right? And it was one of the was one of the movies that that really addressed uh, racial inequality and 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 uh, racial and uh, and really racism. In a really important way back then. Well, um, yeah, no, it's true, and and it also, like I'm saying, it should both of them should have been up for. I mean, should have been really strong contenders for art direction and for costume to win. You know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I know they loved Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it didn't deserve art direction. It also Raiders of the Lost Ark won what they called a special achievement award at the time, which was sound effects editing. So I bet mm-hmm. you in the next year they actually make a category for that. I can't remember when sound effects editing became a category. Um, maybe it became a category sometime during the time I was actually blogging the Oscars. Maybe it was that recent, but I'll check the next year to see if it's up there as an actual category. Um, yeah, that this year, in 1981, there was only one sound category. It was just called Best Sound. Yeah, yeah no, there so. wasn't the next year. There wasn't one. Yeah. This is apropos of almost nothing, but everybody has just watched Behind the Candelabra, and this was the year at the Oscar show where Liberace performed all of the original score nominees. Oh, and and no he kidding. presented the Oscar to Vangelis. He presented oh, really? the Oscar to Vangelis for Chariots of Fire. Oh, yeah, yeah that's I right. A, I took a huge dump on that score at the beginning of the show, and I, 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 I want to... It's not a bad score. It just doesn't fit the movie. And, and honestly, that, that song that bugs me so much, they only played it twice. They played it at the very beginning, and they played it at the very end. It's not like it was played every five minutes during the film, which would have been unbearable. But it really shows you how a score can... Um, I mean, we already saw that with Rocky. Yeah. Um, and with it, to a degree, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been an Oscar thing, because Gone with the Wind was one of those. Titanic was one. Um, you know, when you've got people who don't see a ton of movie movies every year, they see maybe three or four movies a year, and that that soundtrack is in their collection. You mm-hmm. know, it's huge. Yeah, and they mm. and they every time they hear the music, it brings them, it rushes them back to the film. Yeah, uh, you know, and and Reds didn't have that. I mean, it, it for all of its greatness, it didn't have that score. You know. Yeah, I can't even think. I think that Stephen Sondheim scored uh, Reds, which is, but and he did it in a way so that he he tried to replicate the music of the era, and so maybe it was a little bit inapproachable. Yeah, the I mean, neatest part about the, the, the neatest part about the soundtrack was um, there was a song that one of the witnesses sang in the interview. I can't remember what the song is, but then they incorporated that too. It was one of one of those old timey twenties songs. And they incorporated that song into the soundtrack. And every time that there was sort of an emotional beat between between Keaton and Beatty, that song would kick in. It was a really nice touch. Hmm. I don't this, remember this, that. This fact yeah. would be a lot more cool if I could remember the name of the song. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other movie that was competing with Reds for the Critics Awards was Atlantic City, which won the Los Angeles Film Critics. Um, hmm. And uh, funnily enough, Chariots of Fire tied with... Um, Reds for the National Board of Review. You know how people are always giving the National Board of Review so much shit? But they were one of the first that predicted that, um, you know, that, that foretold Chariots of Fire's big success. Oh, yeah? Wow. Yeah. Because mm, it, it tied with 
with that. But. I will say about sound effects editing, it, it actually did become a category the following year, but but they had such a strange name that it wasn't it wasn't grouped with sound. It was grouped with best effects. It, the category was called best effects, best effects, sound effects editing. So it was categorized almost as if it was a visual effect except with sound. And so, but it did become a category the following year in 1982 because E.T. and Poltergeist were both nominated. Also worth mentioning, Chariots of Fire was in the Cannes Film Festival main competition award. It lost to a movie called Light Years Away. Hmm. Anybody ever hear of that one? Nope. He no. didn't. Hugh Hudson did not win the DGA. Uh, well, you know, Hugh Hudson, he's like the UK's answer to John G. Avildsen. <laughs> really, he is, really, because Chariots of Fire was his only movie of, that's worth seeing. I love you know, how you it, put John G. in there. G. Avildsen. Give him a little bit more importance. <laughs> Grace got, like, got attention like, a couple like, years later, but it was not very good. Oh, I actually like John G. Avildsen, like Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> you gotta have a middle initial in your name to really give you oh. some self-importance. Samuel Z. Arkoff presents. <laughs> the song that I was thinking of is called "I Don't Want to Play in Your Yard," which probably isn't going to mean anything to anybody, but oh, you'll yeah. know it if you hear it. Uh-huh. Absolutely, I do the remember the one about that. sliding down your cellar door. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. sexy and cute. Mm-hmm. Sexy, really, really pretty sexy innuendo. But that that movie had such a light touch. I mean, that was the thing about it that was so amazing. It could have gone for total English patient kind of nonsense, you know, but it didn't. He never he never overdid in any scene. Even the end scene, the last scene where he dies, could have been such a no. You know, she's running down the hall in slow uh-huh. motion. <laughs> well, it kept its sense of humor throughout the movie. From the very beginning, it had a great sense of humor about itself. The reaction shots when they would, when Warren Beatty or Diane Keaton or other characters would say something unexpected, the, the reaction shots on the, on the faces of the other characters was pretty funny. You know, it has a has a great sense of humor about itself. Is it bad that I just gave out a really major spoiler? <laughs> does it does not matter when it comes to I history? think if you people who have later, I think it's fair. If you haven't seen Red yet, then... Yeah, you know the John, you know that he died. You know that John Reed dies at some point because he lived in a <laughs> hundred years ago. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Oh man. But Cherry Char- Sapphire actually won quite a lot of um of uh preliminary precursors, didn't it? Not it, really, it didn't. No, it didn't win any of the majors. Film at the Golden Globes. Yeah, it didn't okay. win. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. It yeah. was like King's Speech. It kind of came out of nowhere because we didn't have the PGA, DGA, or PGA SAG. Who knows what oh, it would have done. You know what it won, though? It won, the, it won the Audience Award, a People's Choice, Choice Award at TIFF. Oh, Cherry did it? Fire. Yeah. So talk Just like about, the King's wow. Speech. I know. <laughs> My God. That, that has to be stopped. We have to put an end to that TIFF thing. Because it's because it's people's choice. They admit that it's the people's cho- choice awards. Why should that have any influence oh, on the Oscars? But the Oscars might as well be the people's choice now. That's what it is. That's what it's come down to. So sad. Be that way. I mean, this year, this 1981, this is a template for the Oscars we're living through now. This is almost exactly how it goes. Mm, Except so with five nominees for Best Picture. Yeah. But I tell you, back then, a movie without a director nomination would not have won. I mean, they did. It does, and pretty soon because um, when's mm-hmm. Driving Miss Daisy win? Like, in pretty quick hip coming up here. 
Yeah, but don't to our listeners, don't get get discouraged because we're always going to to go through the years uh, throughout the '80s and find the movies that are worthy and really talk them up and and really piss on the winners. So, we're not <laughs> but, you know, it'll be fun because the, the the Oscar race is not about finding the best. It's a game that's played, and you know people's biases come into play, and it's miss right now and not miss right. If you remember all that, and you know that it doesn't diminish a film's place in history, obviously you just look at the site and sounds list of greatest films of all time and you can see that the nary an oscar winner to be found maybe the godfathers are on there this is the first year where i can honestly say they made a really terrible choice they've made the wrong decision before but i could understand the decision and i actually like the movie that they wind up choosing even though it's not the best movie of the year but this is the first year where i think they actually chose a bad movie yeah it really looks that way in retrospect because Chariots of Fire does not hold up. That's the thing is Rocky and Ordinary People hold up. I don't know why they do, but they do. They somehow hold up. And um, even the King's Speech in its own weird way holds up. I mean, it's a it's, better movie. Yeah, it, it's still what it is, you know. But, I mean, it's nowhere near the, the movies that it was up against. But like you say, it's a good movie. Chariots of Fire, you watch it, it's just kind of like, really? I, I get why English people like it because it was it, it took place in between World War One and World War Two when there still was a British Empire and it's sort of the last gasp, the twenty four Olympics, the last gasp of, of of British, you know, sort of superiority and it disappeared after that. And so I think there's probably a sentimental value, but if you that's why I don't I could so I understand why the BAFTAs went for it but I still don't get the Oscars going for it it makes no sense I, to me I think too there were, the British film industry went through a really a slump in the 1970s and it was like the it was like British films last great hope you know to regain their former glory and in a way when they won the Oscar it gave them encouragement that they were, were about to do that it was short lived because there was only one because then you know, after Gandhi, the following year, they weren't nominated again for and didn't win again for years and years. Yeah. The other thing was the politics of Reds, as you say, um, were kind of a problem. And as you can see, that was certainly not the flavor of the month. Whatever was going on in real politics, however divided people were, um, this is, you know, for the most part in the next few decades, you're just going to see them going for nostalgic pick after nostalgic pick, nothing that really deals with... Um, the pressing problems of the day. The next movie to, to do that will be Platoon, um, which wins in 1987. And, you know, that takes the side of the soldiers, but it's not political in the same way that, like, The Deer Hunter was. Um, but these movies like, you know, The Last Emperor and Amadeus and, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it becomes very much removed from the politics of the day. And I, it, it seems like maybe it started then because you, you can't get much farther away from politics than... Um, chariots of fire oh, i know it's, and you know it's amazing that um the last emperor was very marxist because bertolucci is a marxist and and the, the symbolism and everything throughout the last emperor is full of marxist you know color symbolism and stuff but i guess maybe that went over the top of people's heads oh i'm maybe sure they, they weren't thinking yeah. that yeah. um but it goes all the way up to to driving miss daisy when it wins you know really just very and there was a lot going on in the world at that time. I mean, it, the Driving Miss Daisy year was the, the do the right thing year. You know, and then it's Dances with Wolves. I mean, we just keep hearkening backwards with the Oscars, mm-hmm. you know, just always looking back to the period piece and preferably having to do with World War Two. you know. You know what's interesting about Chariots of Fire at the BAFTA then in, in, um, in 1982? 
it won Best Film, but it only won Best Supporting Actor and um, Best Costume Design. It only won three BAFTA awards. Uh, Which Louis is Mall weird because direct, Louis Mal won Best Director for 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 Atlantic City, and um, Bec- you know why, don't you? Because um, back then the BAFTAs were held after the Oscars, and there was so much shame around that mm. movie having beat uh-huh. beat those. Other I didn't movies. know that. Yeah, the BAFTAs mm. didn't become a precursor to the Oscars until the year 2000. Mm. I, yeah, I'd forgotten that. It doesn't give the the uh, the calendar date when they were held. So, I'm not, but I know that you're right. The uh, uh, Burt Lancaster won Best Actor for Atlantic City. Meryl Streep won Best Actress for French Lieutenant's Woman. And uh, so, interesting. The Baftas did a pretty good job that year. I kind of wish that the Baftas were held after the Oscars. Now, <laughs> yeah, you know, I wish something was held after the Oscars because the Oscars have just been very disappointing. They're just really backing up what the industry voters are doing, and they're not thinking for themselves. And um, I would love to see a group like the BAFTAs come along after the Oscars and, and you know, show them the way it was supposed to be done. Of course, they It'd went. It'd be great for- to see them have to make a choice without having been told for three months what the best pictures are, and just let them pick in a vacuum. Yeah. Right. I was trying to find out why why the Baptist overlooked Reds entirely in 1982, and it's because I guess because of release dates, Reds wasn't in competition until the following year. And by then, you know, when that what that happens after a year, the movie sort of loses its 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 uh, urgency, and yeah. so it only got it was only nominated for in three categories. And Gandhi, of course, won because what's going to be you know what what's going to be Gandhi at the Baptist? Nothing. Yeah. And what's going to be Gandhi at the Oscars? Nothing. <laughs> right. That's a pretty boring year next year, actually, that we have to go through, that we have to trudge the, through. The winners are boring, <laughs> but we can talk about we can talk about E.T. and we can talk about, like, Poltergeist. Poltergeist and E.T. together are quite a pair of bookended movies, you know. I have oh, a little yeah. story about that. If I, can, if I can remember where I found the source, I can refresh my memory about That's it. That's true. And, Plus, you know, Blade Runner and Tootsie and, you know, there's some great movies next year. Oh, yeah. And we also talk about the politics of the time and, and how the Oscars are starting to pull away from that as they started as they, you know, the 70s was the last era. I haven't really examined the other decades because we haven't done this yet for any of the other decades, but so far it's looking like the 70s was the last era where where films were allowed to be really confrontational and, and modern and, and progressive and progressive. liberal and and down and where they were allowed dark. to be downers yeah they were dark and had downer endings you just don't see that much anymore hardly at all no it's it's this very much um you know looking back through rose-colored glasses at our past at a time when we understood it and up to and including the king's speech and argo and the artist are all three movies that do that You've been listening to episode 34 of Oscar Podcast, uh, an extended version with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Sasha Stone, and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music today was from the California punk movement of the early 80s, Viva Las Vegas by the Dead Kennedys, and Let X Equal X by Laurie Anderson from Big Science also in the early 80s. Thanks for listening.